you can't apologize often and quickly. And if you can't forgive often and quickly, you can't have long-term meaningful relationships. And so I'm so grateful that several of the people that I treasure most in my life have given me second and third and 50th chances. And it makes me want to give second and third and 50th chances. I think if our relationships depend on perfect performance, we're gonna end up really isolated, every one of us. Um, and I have made so many mistakes in the last couple years. And I'm so deeply grateful that the people in my life are giving me chances to prove myself to them again. So I wanna be that kind of person with the other people in my life. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. And I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. This week's guest bio says she is a bookworm, a beach bum, and a passionate gatherer of people, especially around the table. As you can imagine, 2020 was not the easiest season for someone who claims to be a passionate gatherer of people. Sitting down with Miles and Lindsay, New York Times bestselling author Shauna Nequist shared about her lifelong commitment to building intentional, life-affirming community, even when it's not comfortable or logistically easy. Shauna was an absolute delight to have on the podcast and is a gem of a human. We think this conversation is one we all need as we collectively emerge from the last year and attempt to re-engage and even reimagine what community looks like. Meet our friend, Shauna. Shauna, it is so great to be with you today. I have known you for a long time and lots of different seasons. And one of the things that I have always loved and appreciated about you is how intentionally you dig in with people and community and that's like a huge sort of piece of who you are and how you love to live and I know that a couple years ago you uprooted from sort of that community that you'd really been building and fostering and you're living in New York in a year of a pandemic <laughs> that dramatically affected the city. I just would love to hear about how you are and how you've navigated that change and just how you've begun to try to foster community again in a new place. Well, yes. And, you know, I think I was trying to think of the exact time we met and I can't remember, but I do know, I feel like it was in a season of your life where you had moved a couple times. And so you, you probably know how to do this a lot better than I do. But to answer your question, I would say, it seems to me, everybody I'm talking with right now it, um, is talking about how, the restrictions associated with the pandemic forced us all to evaluate our relationships and to learn and put into practice some new skills that weren't necessary pre-pandemic, right? So I think for a lot of us, it was clarifying um, which of my relationships feel the most mutual and life-giving and supportive. And I think a lot of us found that we were maintaining maybe larger relational worlds than were realistic for the new restrictions. You sort For of sure. had to focus a little bit. And then the thing I really had to do quite intentionally, um, both when we moved, but also during the pandemic, is to find new ways to connect with relationships that really mattered to me that fit for the current season. So, you know, there are so many people, obviously my extended family, but really good friends from Chicago, where even though we were moving away geographically, I'm still very committed to those relationships. We just had to find new ways to express them. And then obviously when the pandemic came, it's like all of a sudden, everybody has to find new ways to connect. And I'm not a phone person. Anyone who knows me knows like, I just don't wanna do that. But I have become a phone person mm -hmm. because there's nothing like text just doesn't stand in. And so both um, with the, when we moved, I started scheduling like regular phone dates with good friends. And then during the pandemic as well, um, sometimes Zoom, but at a certain point, I think everybody got tired of Zoom. And I was like, I love you. I can't Zoom with you. But those phone dates feel to me like a really important, it, again, it's not my favorite, but it's something I've learned to do because relationships are so important and hearing someone's voice is so important. 
Yeah, I, I wrote that down. Larger relational worlds than are sustainable. I hadn't heard it framed quite like that, but uh, I think that was a big takeaway from me, and I'm continuing to try to learn that. But uh, I too am excited to get to spend some time with you this morning. It's been a while since I've since I've seen you, and I remember I was trying to think about when we first met. It's been a few years ago, I think. Yeah, it has been a few years ago, and I think you were hosting a few people at your home that night, and you made a point in the midst of being incredibly busy to come all the way to the door, you know, welcome me into your home. And you had this uh, innate ability to connect right away. Um, we didn't have any, we had mutual friends, but no historical context. Um, you l- lightly knew a little bit about what I, I enjoyed and what I was into and, and vice versa. But immediately uh, I could tell that you stop time with all that chaos in the background and connected with the person in front of you. And then not surprising, go on to find out that you write a lot, care a lot, are incredibly passionate about building community and connection, which I, I share that passion as well. And I do think I agree that our our ways of connecting have been incredibly challenged, but I do think there's some opportunities in, in this, what we've all learned is time kind of stopped in the way that we knew it to hopefully uh, come out of this maybe a little bit better than we came into it. One of the ways you mentioned is is uh, shrinking our world to something that is manageable. You didn't say that, but I've been, I've been trying to do that because I got to a point where um, I got, even pre-pandemic, I was getting overwhelmed with um, keeping up with a lot of people and I can be a little introverted anyway. And I kind of shrunk back to a point where I'd kind of isolated myself from community and then surprise, um, we weren't seeing anybody. So I found myself in a little bit of uh, conflicted, almost grief in the first few months uh, because I wasn't coming into that season primed with community, ironically. And I think a lot lot of people just think, well, we were all doing great. Everything was wonderful. We were sitting around tables and enjoying each other. But there's a, a whole lot of people I talked to that can relate to actually, you know, I was kind of in this weird season right before that happened. And then boom, that happened. And it felt like kind of a compound effect. So um, I've, I've been coming out of it, you know, as as I'm reemerging and just now, a year later, trying to reconnect with old relationships and friendships. Um, and I almost feel guilty picking up the phone and calling people and say, I know you hadn't heard from me in a year, but I've missed our relationship. I've missed our community. So I just want you to speak into that a little bit more. If, if you will, I know that wasn't a specific question, but I, we're all fans of you and what you do at onsite. I know there were some of our team were super excited uh, when we were going to get a chance to talk to you and they tried to kick Lindsay and I out of the chair today so they could get a chance to ask you some questions. But I know you're a thought leader. You're just a kind spirit that writes about community and connection and a unique, you have a unique voice in that space. And so, you know, that's what we try to foster. That's what we do at, at Onsite and what we represent with the Living Center podcast. So how has it challenged you and what kind of opportunity do you think it might provide for you and all of us collectively coming out of this. Thank you, first of all. Thanks for your kind words and for having me. And I do remember that party at my house. And um, I will say one of the greatest losses for me, you you guys both know this, um, my greatest, like hands down, greatest joy in life is hospitality and hosting people in our home. And to not be able to do that for a year has been really sad and really something to grieve. But I think, again, the opportunity that we all have right now is to reframe, like, what is it about hospitality that I love? What are some ways to reimagine it for this season? It's not going to look the same as it did this last year. But I think, Miles, you touched on something really interesting, which is uh, several interesting things, one of them being that I think a lot of people right now are talking about having lost touch with some people or not having the relational capacity they used to have being out of touch with people they really care about. And when you said, you know, I wanted to pick up the phone, but I also felt a little guilty. I think that's the moment there, right? You have two options. You either pick up the phone and say, I got it wrong, but I care about you and I'd love to try again. Or you never pick up the phone. And there's no opportunity there then for relationship or for growth or for connection. And so I think even if it's awkward, even if it requires an apology, even if it feels like the first couple minutes are sort of stilted or funny or we haven't heard each other's voices for a while, I think when we talk about 
resets and new normals and new beginnings, wouldn't it be wonderful if one of the things that came out of the pandemic was a tenderness and willingness for all of us to give each other second chances, to try again, to listen to what other people have been carrying that we might not know about. That's something that's been so striking for me. Almost every time I get on the phone with a friend that I haven't talked with for a while, they share something about how this last year has been for them that I had no idea that they were carrying. Um, you know, a lot of people have had really serious health problems. A lot of people's COVID experiences have been very scary. A lot of people's family experiences, a lot of people's kids are struggling. A lot of uh, people are in financial, uh, more precarious financial situations. And we don't talk about that day to day. You know, on social media, we're like, oh, I made sourdough. I think the people in my life and sometimes the people in my house are carrying very heavy things right now. And so I think the willingness to pick up the phone, even though it feels awkward, is an opportunity to offer care to someone who might really need it and you might not know any other way. And so I think one thing that I've been, I think, newly aware of as well is, you know, we sort of took away like the fun aspect of friendship, right? Like we took away like all the social part. Like if I see you, it's going to be at a party and there'll be like really great drinks and really great food. And so it's all a fun thing. Well, that's gone mostly. So what we're left with is like support and care and walking with each other when things are difficult. And that's harder, but it's really necessary. And I think if, if we don't tend to one another in these situations, I think a lot of the people in our lives are really hanging by a thread. I think we need care from each other more than we have in other seasons. We, the social stuff is, we'll be fine without that. The care is mandatory. And so I think I have felt more responsibility this last year to show up for the people in my life and offer my care. And also I've reached out a lot in really specific ways and said, I'm hanging by a thread. This is my week to hang by a thread and I need a little care and support. And so if, if another thing that came out of this season is more willingness um, to be forthright, both about our needs and our willingness to offer support, I think that would feel really healthy too. I feel both encouraged and convicted by your advice about just reaching out and getting curious about what's going on with other people. I think sometimes it's easy to believe like the lies that everything is good in their life and that they should be checking in on you because you've got big things happening in your life. And so leaning into like, what is going on with you? Are there things that I need to be caring for you about? And then I am not somebody that's good at expressing a lot of times that need part that can be so hard for me. And I'm so, I feel appreciative and envious of my friends that do it well. I had a friend that had COVID uh, and she literally sent me the recipe that she wanted me to make her of soup. And I was like, this is so helpful. And then I'm like, why can I not do that for myself? So I think that that is so true. Is that something that's come naturally to you or something that you've learned to be able to voice those needs? Oh, I would say I am uh, much more comfortable in the need meeting side of things. Yeah. But I had an experience not that long ago that as soon as you were saying that really stuck in my head. So I, please tell me that you guys have had this experience um, because I was mortified. So I, I knew that I was like not doing great. I knew that I was carrying a lot of pain and stress and loss and grief and kind of chaos inside me, but I was like working on it. I, you know, have a great therapist and I write in my journal and I go for walks and I do all the, you know, a lot of things to kind of help myself heal through this season. But you know how sometimes even with all of that work, the unhealed part of you just like leaps out at an extremely inopportune time and this happened. So it was supposed to be like a really fun time. And then I hijacked fun time with an ocean of tears. Mm. And I was so embarrassed. And the people I was with responded in such a lovely way. They are very caring people. They're empathetic. They're very good friends. But I was just like, oh, that is not what I, I we were supposed to be having fun time. And I made it serious, terrible time. And I was so embarrassed. And so I felt both very cared for and very loved, but then also like uh, the worst. And one of the women, one of my very dear friends leaned forward and I was I just kept apologizing. And she said, do not take away from us 
the honor of caring for you in your pain. Mm. And that really struck me. Um, it, the story is not just that I'm like dragging them all down with my weepiness. The yeah. story is it's an honor to be trusted with someone's great heartbreak or someone's great need. And I think about the ways that I have felt when someone invites me in to the very like deepest, most like cracked up, broken. It, I would never say like, hey, I was here for fun time, guys, you know? <laughs> and so she reminds me, and I keep thinking of that line, don't take away from us the honor of being with you and, and walking with you in this great pain. So I think um, the more we can get comfortable with that and the more we can model that, you know, I can't say, hey, I want to be there for you. It really matters to me to be there for you. It really matters to me that we trust each other, that we show up for each other, but then never show you when I need it, right? I can't only be the one who's bringing the soup. At a certain point in a friendship, like you have to let somebody bring you that soup. That's what reciprocity and mutuality and trust gets built on. I think it's a lot easier to stay in sort of the helper position but I think one thing this year taught us is we all need a lot more help than we thought. We all need a lot more support than we thought, or at least I do. Yeah. Good gracious. There was so much in there. I don't even know where to go. I just, let me show you what I'm doing here. It's <laughs> <laughs> writing and circling and writing and circling. Those My, are some, Miles just lifted up a long notepad. <laughs> those are some good words. Um, the tenderness and willingness to give each other second chances. Whew, I'll start there. Um, but also, well, actually, I think the the unhealed parts of us, I appreciate you saying that. That's a, you know, working in mental health and wellness, there's a, there's a therapeutic framework that I really value. And it's it's called internal family systems. And the premise is basically parts work where there's you, and I won't get into the theory around it other than just to say it's you're identifying that there are parts of self that have this certain thing that are, has happened and you, you identified these, the unhealed parts of you, not all of you, just this unhealed part of you hopped out at an inopportune time. And I think I too, you said, I hope you can, you said, I hope this has happened to the two of you. And I was like, yes, yes. Like yesterday. No, <laughs> uh, it's, it's ironic that I, I have all the evidence in the world to support that. Um, it's incredibly what, what you just said, basically that it's incredibly valuable to, um, be vulnerable and to share uh, all parts of self uh, with people that you can trust. And, and I've been working in this space for two decades and we practice it week in and week out with the facility, with what we get to facilitate. I practice it in my own life yet. I have still been and continue to be culturally conditioned to apologize for it and to not mm -hmm. show that part. And so it, it's a very human experience. Now I will say I'm way better at it because I've done a lot of work, but there's still a part of me that when that part shows up, the first instinct is I'm in the way uh, or I'm bringing things down. And I just love that you framed it in a way to be a little bit un unapologetic in that living in your truth, you're actually honoring the friends in the community around you. That's often the formula that makes good coaching and counseling, it's the foundation. It's when you can sit in front of another human being and be empathetically heard, valued, connected with, appreciated, supported. And I've always thought, why, why is that only reserved for people who get to go to counseling? And how do we ripple that out, some of those principles, and put them into good friendships, good community put them around the table, put them in boardrooms, put them in education systems, put them in politics. And that's the opportunity I'm hopeful that we all lean further into. I don't want to diminish my profession. I think it's wildly important. And there will always be a need for us to be able to use our training and our skill set to meet people where they are in challenging seasons and in great seasons. But I'd love for us as humanity to start embracing more of allowing people to experience the unhealed parts of ourselves and hold space for one another. So, you know, there was so much in there. I wanted to ask about what it's like. So, you know, back up about five minutes. And I said, you know, we're fans of your work. Well, there's a part of you that does something there in public. You've written books, you know, you speak. Um, and so, so I affirm that part of you. 
and often uh, we get so wrapped up in our professional identities that we there's not much between who we are and what we do. And I just wondered for you, has that been a challenge trying to be authentic to who you are, do some of what you do in public because you put your work out into the world and then uh, try to be a human? This is I mean, I could talk about this for days. Um partially because this is one of the hardest parts of my work life. I I have always really uh, struggled with the public part of my work. I am really sensitive. I'm very thin-skinned. I take things personally. I want to please people and not be controversial. And all of those things are just like a setup for a really difficult relationship to public work. I did not want to be a speaker or a pastor or a public leader. I wanted to be a writer, like and like the typing part, like not, you know, like well before social media existed. I, um, books and authors changed my life so profoundly. The, I, I can track every major kind of transformational experience in my life, either to a relationship with a human person or to a book or an author, like starting when I was in junior high. Uh, and so books and authors and their thoughts and what, what they made me feel and the way they, they connected with me changed my life in so many ways. And so I just wanted to be a part of that. I just wanted to join that community. I did not want and then the, just the weirdest thing happens. You know, you spend a year and a half completely alone typing and then the second the book comes out, people are like, I've got a microphone and a stage. What do you think? And you're like, well, that's not what I thought <laughs> being a writer would be about. And, you know, obviously I grew up in a, a relatively public environment and I, in a large church, and I just along the way developed enough public speaking skills to do that part of my job. But anyone who knows me well will tell you uh, that's the hardest part of it for me, not the speaking part of it, the living in public part of it and receiving so much feedback about people's ideas about my life. It's just not natural, right? You shouldn't have hundreds or thousands of people weighing in on every choice you make in your life. You should have like six people weighing in. And so I think one of the things I've had to work really, really hard to do is to use social media and use books and use speaking in such a way that I'm able to protect my own self, my own um, authentic growth, my core relationships. Um, but that hasn't been easy and I haven't always gotten it right. And I've um, sought advice from so many people that I respect and I've changed my perspective along the way. I think sometimes we don't talk about it because we think it, it should be easy. Like, no, it's just fine. Like, no, I totally don't care what people are saying about me on social media. That's fine. When I actually sit down and talk about it with people, it's hard for almost everyone I know. It's just a weird thing. And I think a lot of people are struggling with it. And I am too. The book part of my life, I could, I hope I write books forever. I love that part of my life. That feels really like, like I hit the jackpot every day. And one of the things that's amazing about New York City is it's extremely anonymous. And that has been very, very healing for me. That has not, that was not true in other places where I've lived or some of the work I've done in other places. And to get to be a creative person and a, a writing person separate from some of the ongoing public stuff in my day-to-day -day life has been a real gift and I really needed that. So that's a long answer, but <laughs> I hope that's oh. helpful in some way. Hey friends, Mackenzie here. As the world begins to open back up, many of us are anticipating the opportunity to once again make plans to travel and find meaningful, life-changing experiences. On our campus in Tennessee and in Southern California at the Oaks, we remain committed to providing the highest quality emotional health care while continuing to foster a safe environment for all of our guests and our staff. We're so excited to announce that in alignment with the CDC guidelines, we have lifted our campus-wide mask mandate for guests that are fully vaccinated. We are so grateful to see our campus filled once again with people connecting face-to-face -face safely. We'd love to invite you to join us for an in-person emotional wellness experience. Our therapeutic framework combined with our healing hospitality will cultivate a safe space for you to find the emotional healing and exploration you need to thrive in the future. 
For the past 40 years, Onsite has helped tens of thousands of people feel more equipped to handle the challenges of life. Head to onsiteworkshops.com events to see a full list of our upcoming programs or connect with a member of our admissions team at 1-800-341-7432. If you're interested, you can learn about our COVID protocols and procedures at onsiteworkshops.com COVID. I deeply resonate with so much of what you said, and I think I just wanted to affirm how you show up because I, I get the tension of that, and I feel it even when I, you know, read your social media and engage with you there, that it's, I know that you're sort of trying to figure out how to be your most authentic self in an appropriate way, and it just has been such a model for me of, like, how to do that well. And I think a lot of people sort of do it opposite where they get into writing because they want to be, you know, in front of crowds and things like that. And that requires really a lot of platform building and doing things that sort of appeal commercially and sort of, I feel like you've done a really good job of navigating how to stay true to yourself in the midst of it. And it's made you feel like a very safe voice for me to learn from. Thank you. That means so much to me. Thank you. I appreciate your candor and your honesty and your wrestling. Mm -hmm. And I think another thing you said is sort of, you acknowledge that you're evolving. And I think so often people feel like they have to continue to be who they were and they get so trapped in that, whether it's ideology or if it's just even like how they used to show up, that they feel like they can't break out. And there's such a freedom in acknowledging that I'm going to continue to grow and evolve and my thoughts will continue to shift. Mm -hmm. And that what I thought yesterday might not be what I think today. And hopefully it's not what I'm going to think tomorrow. It's such a funny thing. I think you're exactly right. Sometimes when, when you kind of build a relationship with someone that's a, uh, it's a public relationship, you've read their work or something like that. It's easy to sort of freeze them in time. Yeah. And I do that with people, you know, I read their book from 20 years ago and I assume they're that person that they were 20 years ago. I got, a, I got an email recently and someone was, she, it was so kind, but she was talking about my baby and I realized, oh my goodness, that's a book I wrote almost 15 years ago. Like that baby is a giant person now and that's fine. That's just, you know, time, but, but it is, especially when you've connected with something, it's easy to kind of want to freeze them as exactly whatever made you connect in the first place. You don't want them to grow away from you or separate from you. And I think there's also tremendous, you know, this is, there is a business to this. And I've been in so many marketing meetings where I've had to say like, hey guys, like I totally respect what you're doing. I'm not a mood board. Like I, mm-hmm. I don't, I am not a product to sell. I'm not going to consistently match the aesthetic of the blah, blah, blah. Like that's just, I'm like a human person who has all these weird edges and interests and it's never going to come together perfectly, but I'm going to keep trying and I'm going to keep matching my public and private selves in real time all the way through. That's the promise I can make to you, Uh, but it's tricky. It's hard to get right. Mm. Keep matching my public and private selves all the way through or the commitment. I love that. Uh, I want to circle back to that the hope that you put out there about second chances, tenderness and willingness to give each other second chances. I think that's such a powerful prompt. Um, why is that important to you? Why do you think it's important for all of us? Well, I mean, on a very personal level, some of the reason it's important to me is because I, I've had a really hard couple years Some of the things, and some of them are things that I've talked about, and some of them are not. But in the course of major life change and a big move and a lot of different things shifting in my life, there are a lot of things that I got wrong. There were relationships that I didn't put enough effort into. There were misunderstandings that I let grow. And I joke about it sometimes. It's not really funny, but it... um, I'm getting really, really good at apologizing and asking for second chances. And I think that's the way through. I think relationships depend on our willingness to apologize and forgive. There's this, I think, kind of abstract idea we have that when something goes wrong in a friendship, it's over. 
I think when something goes wrong in a friendship, it's normal, right? We just, and if you can't apologize often and quickly, and if you can't forgive often and quickly, you can't have long-term meaningful relationships. And so I'm so grateful that several of the people that I treasure most in my life have given me second and third and 50th chances. And it makes me want to give second and third and 50th chances. I think if our relationships depend on perfect performance, we're going to end up really isolated, every one of us. And I have made so many mistakes in the last couple of years. And I'm so deeply grateful that the people in my life are giving me chances to prove myself to them again. So I want to be that kind of person with other people in my life. I think the common phrase around like when you get on the airplane and they tell you to put your mask on first and take care of yourself first and then put it on everybody else. And um, you alluded to it's just been a difficult season. How did you manage to sort of take care of yourself in the midst of sort of the pain of other people around you? And was that a hard thing to navigate of like, how do I start with me and realize that I can't be good for other people unless I can like show up for myself? Mm -hmm. No, I, um, I would say my natural bent or inclination is not to take great care of myself for a long time, for many years. I was very, like we joke about it, like I, I eat like a college sophomore. <laughs> I can sleep anywhere and I don't need that much sleep. And I, I use baby wipes on my face, like really not good at taking care of myself on any level. And I had to learn the hard way, the older I got, both in terms of like physical health, but definitely like spiritual, emotional, mental health. Like I had to get very serious about those things in my life because the pain level in my life was so high. I couldn't make it through the day without some like very radical, aggressive self-care and healing practices. And I think nobody develops those when you don't need them, right? It's like, like nobody goes on a cleanse when they feel great, right? You make radical changes in your life because the pain level gets high enough. Mm -hmm. So the pain level got high enough in my life and I had to learn and I'm still learning how to care for myself. For me, a lot of it is reading and writing. I read every single day and it's the number one healing practice in my life. And I write every day and it's probably the second most important. And I write certainly like for my job, but I also write, um, I, I never want to tell like a therapist something I learned in therapy, but one thing I learned in therapy is that grief especially <laughs> is somatic, meaning we experience it in our bodies. And so it means it has to get out of our bodies. And so some of that I walk every day and that's a really, I would say that's a spiritual and mental health practice way more than it is a physical one. But writing for me, I picture all of the pain and all of the grief and all of the confusion leaving my body through my fingers and wow. finding its place on my laptop, <laughs> which now makes me think my laptop is just like a cesspool of toxic emotions with, no, um, maybe, I'm going to prefer to think that gets somehow transformed magically. But, but I, I type and type and type and type as a way of saying, these are the things I'm experiencing, but this is not who I am. It's not what I'll always feel. I would say my relationships are, I'm getting much better at asking for the help and support that I need. So my relationships are a major part of my kind of self-care and, and wellness. I've had to get a lot more serious about like boring stuff like sleep and nutrition and water. I've never been good at that. And again, you never change until the pain level gets high enough. And I'm just willing to try anything at this point anything that will help me live with more freedom and more health and more wholeness. And so my mom just told me recently, she was looking back through her old journals. And when she was in her mid forties, she realized that many of the things that had worked for her in terms of just like emotional, spiritual, physical, mental health, the things that had worked all through her life stopped working in her mid forties. Mm -hmm. And I was like, say that again. I mean, that's just totally my experience. And I don't know how much of it is the pandemic and how much of it is just the, you know, major changes I've been going through the last couple of years, but I have had to put more energy and focus into nailing down some new practices for health and healing than I ever have in my life. Wow. And obviously, oh, I'm so sorry. Obviously therapy is totally a part of that. I, 
one of my tiny pet peeves, I know you guys believe in therapy, but one of my tiny pet peeves is when people talk to me about all the things they're doing to try to heal through a difficult season. And they talk about like running is their therapy or um, I don't know, doing puzzles is their therapy. And I always say, do you know what is my therapy? Therapy, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, I do think there's something sacred and unique about that way of working and healing with another person who has the background and the skills, who can hold space. And I just, I think it's, I, I don't want to go through my whole little list of things I'm learning and not have that on the list because it's totally at the top. Mm. Yeah. Thanks for that. It does. It's self-care therapy, just the whole concept of mental health. We're in this really interesting inflection point where it's um, never been needed more, you know, in, in terms of what we're seeing out in culture. And yet we've got this opportunity with this next generation is, is ushering it in, in a different way. They're not going to stand for it, not being talked about in the workplace um, or in education systems. And they're going to talk about it in faith systems. They're going to talk about it. And I appreciate you bringing that in. I mean, I fully understand and uh, value the science of nutrition and exercise and the whole gut brain axis and how it all benefits uh, whatever you might be going through. But at the end of the day, uh, therapy is vital. It's an important uh, part of um, life for so many of us. And you talked about spiritual and emotional health. You use those interchangeably a few times. And, you know, I, I grew up in, in a, a conservative spiritual home and got a lot of great things from it. And there were a lot of things I needed to unlearn from it. Uh, but certainly those two weren't in the same neighborhood, spiritual and emotional health. You know, those you just didn't, emotional health wasn't in the neighborhood at all. I didn't even have a seat at the table, but uh, how do you see the two of those intersecting spiritual and emotional? Um, and that's a great question. And I would say, I don't use them. I don't use those terms interchangeably. I don't think they're the same thing, but I do. I think intersect is a great word. I think they do intersect. I think I, I use them as a, uh, you know, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, maybe relational would be like kind of the whole range um, there. And I think, I think the spiritual in my view is about soul connection specifically to God and to the world that he created and to people in a, um, yeah, in a, a spiritual or maybe mystical way that we're, we're talking about a divine aspect to our lives and our experiences. And so for me, that's being a part of a church community. It's uh, praying by myself. It's praying with my kids. It's, you know, saying the creeds and being a part of communion or Eucharist. It's reading a, a lot of my spiritual practices center in silence and reading. Um, one of the ways that I experience, um, I would say, spiritual health or connection most profoundly is usually in reading and silence and listening. But also I do see a spiritual director, which I think is really, really important. And I think especially you mentioned something about unlearning some things that you grew up with in a religious environment. I think especially for people who are in a season of either unlearning or deconstructing, spiritual direction can be a really like safe and lovely container in which to hold some of that chaos and confusion. So I would totally encourage that. But I, I think we, I don't, in the same way that I think we can't neglect our emotional or mental health, we can't neglect our spiritual health. And I think it's very easy, especially for people who have had a negative religious experience, which so many of us have, it is so worth unraveling and deconstructing and unlearning those things because what's on the other side of that when you can recover the beautiful strains of a thriving spiritual connection that anchors us in a way that none of these other things can do and i'm so grateful to have to have battled through a lot of the unlearning and and dismantling my spiritual, the spiritual part of my life is one of the greatest treasures of my life. And one of the things I lean on most specifically, especially in chaotic seasons. Mm. I'd love to hear you. I love 
you're talking about spiritual direction. I do think sometimes it gets confused with therapy. How are the conversations like that you have with your spiritual director different than the conversations that you have from your therapist? And I think even some therapists that are maybe uh, faith-based counselors, there is a spiritual component to that. And so how have those things separated for you? I just think it helped clarify it for other people. Totally. And I think it's a great question. And people ask me a lot, like, what's the difference between spiritual direction and therapy? And you're touching on the exact thing. There's a huge range of both. So there's like, you know, therapy goes from here all the way and then it turns into spiritual direction and it goes all the way here. But so in my experience, which is, you know, I've had a handful of different therapists and a handful of different spiritual directors, a couple things I would say. There's a learning aspect in therapy, learning about our brains, learning about our emotions, learning about our bodies, learning about trauma or how our bodies hold pain. There's, a, there's an aspect of, there's a body of knowledge a lot of times that a therapist is introducing to a patient. Whereas in my experience, spiritual direction, a lot of times, like this is like not the right way to say it at all, but I have sometimes in a pinch described it as an hour to pray with training wheels. Mm. Like someone is sitting next to you and making space for you to connect with God and they're, but in a very non-invasive way. But I, I think there's a range of that too. I think I've had some spiritual directors where it is very much a conversation back and forth and somewhere it's largely silence. And I'm like cracking my eye open, like, are you still here? But I think there's, in my experience, spiritual direction is about ushering someone into a space where they can connect with God in some way. Whereas therapy tends to be more about the connection between the two people. And I think spiritual direction is less so about that connection between the two. They both feel really, really valuable to me, but really different. That was helpful. You've got a good way, I think, of, um, I don't know, I guess bringing the humanness uh, into uh, a conversation, into a concept, into everything you've been talking about, you just really make it human. And I think that's so needed right now that we value the human in ourselves, value the humanness in other people. I think that's what's going to make humanity a little better. Um, even, you know, the, the conversations like this, uh, I hope that uh, you, in this case, you know, we... We do interview a few people we don't know, but in this case, we we know you. And I hope that I'm sure you do some of these. Uh, I hope that you'd feel uh, just, you know, honored the, the humanness in you. And I'm just curious because you were talking about how important it is to have transparent conversations. Um, words really matter. Like I said earlier, when you clarified a word that, that I missed, how often do you do that in your day-to-day relationships and your business relationships? Would you just stop for a moment and say, does this feel, uh, or in your own words, um, how's the relationship going? In other words, assess and analyze in real time to see if it's supportive uh, going both ways. How often do I have those kind of check-in conversations about like the state of our relationship? Yeah. That's a great question. I would say I'm learning to have them more and more often because I'm realizing how quickly things can go off the rails without those conversations, I think. And how much, if if we don't create space to talk about those things, how easy it is to make assumptions that are different than what we intend. One of the things years and years ago, a friend of mine uh, was teaching me, uh, we were talking about something and he said, I've changed the way that I make to-do lists in my life. And I said, okay, tell me. And he said, it's changed everything about my life. I don't just put down the tasks. I put, what are the things that I would regret if I didn't do them at the end of the day? If I looked back in the day and I left these three things undone, I'd be operating outside of my values or my vision for what I want for my life. And so he talked about how it was all of a sudden his to-do list is less about tasks and more about connection. And so, I mean, that was, I don't know if I even had kids then, 
But now, if you look at my to-do list, it always has connect with Aaron, connect with Henry, connect with Mac. If I don't have a meaningful connection with each of them through the course of a day, I haven't lived according to my values. And it doesn't mean we go for an hour-long walk, and it doesn't mean we discuss like the dimensions of the universe, but it means that each of the three people that I love most in the world have gotten like straight into their eyes, leaving space to talk, a couple minutes of connection. And what I've noticed then is you catch things early, right? If there's something that's um, causing one of my kids a little stress or sadness, if you ask about it, if you make space for them to tell you every day, then they don't have to wait a month and carry something really heavy until I finally set aside, you know, a long lunch to talk with them about it. And Erin and I try um, every day to at least create a little bit of space. This is a, a silly thing, but a million years before we moved to New York, there was a, a writer in New York who I really love. And she talked about when they had little kids, um, they couldn't always like get a sitter and you know go out on the town, but they had this tiny little fire escape. And the fire escape represented to them, we're not just parents, we're not just co-parents, we still have this connection that's just the two of us. And so it became this like signal, they would say like, hey, fire escape? And they would head out and sit on this little fire escape for just like a cup of tea or a glass of wine in the evening. And we started doing that at our house in the suburbs with our little like front stoop years and years ago, just as a way of saying like, no agenda, doesn't have to be three hours, just like fire escape. It means like, I'm going to make space for you and look in your eyes for maybe 15 minutes. And uh, we did that this morning in Aaron's little office. I'm really, really committed to the extremely regular short check-ins, just as a way of always expressing my care and making space for whatever might be bubbling up. Mm. So good. Yeah, I think sometimes we overthink it and think it has to be this big, intense connection thing and those little moments can make, negate the need for the big things. So that's great. This is kind of a dorky question, but I love books like you do. What are some of the books that have been the most transformative for you? in your journey? That, that is one of my favorite questions, as you know. The two of 2020 that were just like I give them out over and over and over, Bruce Feiler's uh, Life is in the Transitions. It's so great. I love it so much. Essentially, he does all of this research and interviews all of these different people, and all of them experience what would what would be categorized as a catastrophic life change, some of them chosen, some of them unchosen. And what he studied was how we essentially re-narrate our lives according to these catastrophic events and how most people, if they've done some of the necessary like healing and reframing work, come to look at these catastrophic changes as something that shaped them in a neutral way or even reshaped their life in a positive way. And it was so inspiring to me. Uh, I mean, I just cried all the way through it, gave away a case of it, keep it on my shelf. I love it so much. I actually, I don't email authors very often. And I absolutely just like reached out to him. It was like, hi, I love your book. And we be friends. Yes. Um, and he lives in Brooklyn, which is cool. And then the other one, uh, Maggie Smith wrote a book called Keep Moving. So she's a poet. Um, she lives in Ohio. She wrote the, book, the poem Good Bones. Uh, which is like one of my all-time favorite poems. It's just beautiful. And then she went through um, an unexpected and very painful divorce. And I'm not like giving away her story. She like talks about it on the internet. And she started writing essentially like post-its to herself every morning. And then she started posting them online every morning. And this situation in her life was unfolding at exactly the right time that I was in the middle of this absolutely heartbreaking situation in my own life. And it's like my best friend, Maggie Smith, sent me a post-it every day on the internet. Mm. And, and she, you know, she's a poet, so the language is just beautiful, but it's brave and it's about resilience and it's about reclaiming the parts of your story that you thought were lost. It's so beautiful and inspiring. And so that's another one. Like if, if you call me, if either of you call me next week and say, um, this horribly painful thing is happening, I am going to Amazon Prime you both of those books right away. I have done it 50 times this year. Those are the two that I think should be on a bedside right now. Getting them both. <laughs> yeah, I saw you writing those down, Lindsay. Order two of them. Yeah, I will. 
Shauna, thank you. Um, I've just got a page full of notes here. Uh, there's been so much um, good stuff that has come out of this. I, one of my favorites was when something goes wrong in a relationship, it's normal. Um, tenderness, willingness, second chances. And I love that we kind of landed at the end here. Uh, I like the way you said just a couple minutes of connection. I like that. A couple minutes of connection. That's something we can do. I love what you said about the to-do list. I learned from that as a parent. But, you know, I think what I learned from is, you know, you go into these conversations thinking that you have to have a, a, a format. Uh, you have to be a brilliant interviewer to make them interesting. You have to, and, and, and you can have one like this, that for me, uh, we didn't have an agenda. We just wanted to talk to you. And uh, there was a lot of really beautiful things that that came out of it. And so I hope I hope you felt the same way, too. This was I feel like this was a great way to spend my time today. And I'm a beneficiary of of getting to hang out with you a little while. And you, too, Lindsay, and and, and maybe others will be, too, if they, they listen along. But we just we value your time. We value your your the heart that, and the intention that you put into what you do and how you show up in the world. And as I said, in the very beginning, I love, I love what you do, but I really um, love who you are. Oh, thank you. And I, I mean, this has been a pleasure and I'd be happy to do it anytime. And you guys know this, I've told you both this, you know, um, multiple times. Um, Lindsay, you reached out to me during a really difficult season in my life and Frankly, I was not returning texts to like my anybody at that time, but I hit like we've been talking about, you never take the plunge until the pain level gets high enough. And I saw your text and I thought I need some help. And you too, and your team gave me the space and the help and the perspective and the healing that I needed in truly one of the most difficult seasons in my life. And I will never forget it. And so I think if we wonder, like, I think I always think, no, just like keep your head down and keep going. Don't do anything mm -hmm. dramatic. Just even though things are falling apart left and right, don't like do something crazy, like go to onsite. Definitely just stay in the daily pain, right? <laughs> um, and I look back on that and um, you guys made it so easy for me to say yes to something that felt sort of impossible. It felt impossible to get out of town. It felt impossible to take those days for myself. But you made it really easy for me. And I can't tell you how often I think of an experience or a conversation that I had during those days. You guys created an environment where I got to put back together some pieces of myself that really needed some work and some healing. And I am just forever grateful for what you guys are doing and what you did for me in that moment. Thank you. Thank you for that. And Hopefully you can come back and visit sometime. I would love to. If you want to learn more about OnSite and our various in-person, online, and digital offerings, please go to onsiteworkshops.com. At OnSite, we have seen that enhancing emotional health changes lives and helps us collectively create a more empathetic and more self-aware world. Our unique and proven therapeutic framework and healing hospitality can help you find the emotional wellness you deserve. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call one 800 341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.